So your father obviously was you know, a very prolific producer, also directed television, and was also a first assistant director, which you ended up doing. Uh, when you really knew that you wanted to work in this business, was there any advice that uh, you asked your father, or did he impart you any wisdom that really uh, helped you move forward? Um, I grew up on a movie set, so I kind of learned it by being there. Uh, I didn't, we didn't have, we had a really good relationship, but we really didn't talk about work. So um, I'm sure I learned just from observing him when I was a kid growing up. Yeah. Um, and I think I had it, I think what his, his sense of organization and his sense of how to handle people, I kind of probably watched. And so when I got to the opportunity to do what I did, um, I think it, all of that stuff had rubbed off on me. But no, we didn't, we didn't talk specifically. Yeah. Uh, so the first film you worked on was uh, This Property is Condemned, which Sidney Pollack directed. Um, but before that, were you the assistant to William Castle? Or you no, had worked in later. his office? Oh, that was later? Later. Okay. The first thing I did, actually, I, when I, I left school, I went to work in England, and I was a road manager for rock groups in England. And then I brought the Dave Clark Five. I was a roadie for the Dave Clark Five. Uh, we did 48 cities in 52 days. When I came back, uh, I got a job on two of the biggest movies ever made, Billy the Kid versus Dracula and Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. <laughs> they each took five days to make, and those were my first 10 days of actually getting paid on a movie. Wow. And then I went to work on This Property is Condemned, and I was sent down to Mississippi to prep the movie. And on the first day of shooting, the uh, first AD was an older man who couldn't handle the walking up and down the train trestle. It was a big hill to get up to where the train tracks were, and he quit. So the second became the first, and they needed a second AD, and I was 19 years old and wow. had been on a set my whole life. So they said, oh, you, hey, you're the second today. <laughs> and so uh, fortunate, uh, they liked the job I did, and I got a waiver with the Guild to work on the film, and unbeknownst to the... <laughs> Guild, the, the movie took a very long time to make, over the 90 days that you need to Taft-Hartley, and eventually, a few years later, I was able to get into the Director's Guild and work as a second AD. Wow. So what were your uh, responsibilities on the set of This Property is Condemned? Second AD. Everything. So just organizing, organizing schedule, call sheets. Call sheets, paper, extras, everything. Everything a second AD does. And uh, when you transition to, to being a first... Um, when you had to, you know, really break down a script, schedule it out, locations, strategy, working with a director to not only accomplish the creative goals, but to actually physically complete the movie, uh, did you feel there was any learning curve, or what were some of the important lessons you learned as you were starting to transition into... Well, I, I worked for two great first ADs when I was a second, David Salvin and then Hank Moonjean. Uh, and I did several movies with both, and um, they were really, really good, and I learned from them. And uh, I was made a first AD when I was very young. I think I was 23 years old, and uh, I loved it. I loved it, and uh, I loved running the set. I loved watching, and as a first AD, you have to hear everything and see everything. And, uh, were walkie-talkies used a lot back then, or was it? Uh, <laughs> well, on the first one, yeah. <laughs> on the first movie, the walkie-talkies were 
they weighed about 45, 50 pounds. Well, so there were no so ear pieces no, like today? No, 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 there wasn't any of that. <laughs> and literally, I used a bullhorn uh, to yell, or I had flags. Wow. <laughs> With a green flag, or a yellow flag, or a red flag. We were shooting down a railroad track, and yeah. I positioned a Mississippi policeman to hold the traffic of any non-period cars. And I'd wave a green flag like, you know, you can let the cars go or hold up a red one yeah. or, or, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I didn't start, you know, with covered wagons, but, <laughs> but certainly communication. And there was only a first AD and a second AD yeah. then. There weren't even trainees. So it was just... You know, and when I became a first, were there any production assistants that had no. any delegation responsibility? No, no, no PAs. Wow. Uh-uh. We did it all by ourselves. It's incredible. It's and by the way, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have PAs on uh, the way we were. I really? Mean, yeah. yeah. It was me and Jerry Zeisner who became a great first. Yeah. I read his himself. book. It's really uh, incredible. Did he talk about when he was a second? He uh, he did on way we were and communicating with Barbara Streisand and Robert Redford. I would kind of play games with him to get out of the trailer. And so did he mention me? Uh, I'm not. I don't think I don't so. I think it was more sort of confined to uh, uh, yeah. His no, experience, he was. Uh, yeah, no, he was. He was my second on about four or five movies. Wow. I got him his for his job on Black Sunday, and then I got him the job on Apocalypse Now. Wow. And uh, when you do a movie like Chinatown, where it's a period film, um, it's sort of many different locations. It's all in Los Angeles, but many different locations. And you're really trying to break down that script, as well as like background actors who are going to be dressed in period clothing. Uh, What are the challenges approaching something like that to really execute it fully? Uh, I think the challenge of breaking down any script is visualizing, is looking at the page, and really, I mean, of course, you, you, you break down who the actors are in the scene and what vehicles and what props and all that stuff. But uh, the biggest thing is visualizing the scene and how you would, how you would see it to make it real and yeah. make it truthful. And also knowing your director. You know, uh, I worked on Rosemary's Baby with Roman. Not as an AD, but I kind of did work as an AD, even though I was dialogue coach as well, but I worked for Danny McCauley. What was your job as dialogue coach? What did that sort of? Entail? I worked. I I literally ran lines with Mia and wow. Casavetes and Ruth Gordon and all of them all the time and and held book, you know, and talked about and and I was kind of I was an assistant to William Castle who was the producer and also uh, I got very close with Roman. Wow. Yeah, I so, think William Castle was planning to direct that at one point, or was he? Uh, he well, optioned the book, I guess, or yes, no, he he bought the book. Yeah, he bought the book. We we read it. We read it uh, one morning, and he flew to New York, and he bought the book before anybody else had a chance. Wow. And he came back, and he um, Bob. He was he was working. He had a deal at Paramount. Bob Evans called and said, "I understand Bill Castle has the book. Uh, you know, and get him in here." And when Bill got back from New York, he went to Bob Evans' office and made a deal to produce the movie and best efforts to direct. And that was Bill's. That was Bill's real downfall, because Bill had directed a lot of what we'll call B horror movies, and this was his chance to really direct a great horror movie. And um, he gave it up. He gave it up by saying best efforts, and Bob Evans went out and got Polanski. And I think it really hurt Bill. 
couldn't do anything about it. That was his deal. And uh, he loved being around Roman, but it was Roman's movie. So he really didn't have a lot of creative control over the script or any... No, not whatsoever. Even in no. post-production as far as the cuts or anything? No. no. It was Roman mm. and Bob Evans. Yeah. yeah. So, so really, Bill was pretty destroyed. And he was... He wasn't pushed out totally. I mean, he was yeah. allowed to be there, but it really wasn't his, wasn't, wasn't his choices. And uh, as far as sort of working with different uh, directors and different styles of working with directors, as you mentioned before, um, so like a Roman Polanski, an Alan J. Bakula, uh, a Warren Beatty, uh, among all of those, what do you think is sort of different working styles that you've seen among directors when they're sitting down with you in pre-production and they're trying to you know, organize the schedule and how everything is going to be shot? Well, I, I think that um, what's different, I, th I think, again, I try to visualize what, what the scene is and how long it's going to take to shoot it, yeah. given the parameters of it's an interior on a set or it's an exterior at a dam <laughs> where you have to open the dam and a lake, you know, and a river has to like be in parallax view, yeah. you know, uh, but you have to get to know your director and, and what I, even as a producer, I, I get to know my director and understand what his vision is of the movie and how he likes to work. And once I've communicated with him how he likes to work, then I, I go out and make my schedule based on kind of you know, the kind of money we have, the kind of time we have, the kind of actors we're going to have in the movie and how long they're going to take, uh, and then go from there. But each one is their own personality, and, and I, I have my own personality, but I believe, I believe there's a woman named Miscommunication. <laughs> She's not allowed on my movies. So yeah. I'm very forceful to make sure that everybody knows what's going on. I don't like secrets. I think secrets are a real hindrance to making a movie. And I like the team effort. So if everybody on the team knows what they're doing and knows what the director wants and knows where we're shooting and how we're shooting, um, then we have a much better chance of making a really good film. Yeah. And once you get to set and, you know, day one of production, you're filming and everything is progressing, um, is it always your goal to say, okay, we have these pages that we plan on shooting today, whether it be five pages, eight pages, and we need to get these accomplished. And is it always the goal to get those pages uh, shot for the day? Is that um, really something that's in your mind? Like, oh, we have to accomplish well, sure. this? Well, or from, 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 you know, a seven o'clock call in the morning, Yeah. the director, the cameraman, and myself talk about what the day's work is and how we plan to do it. And then rehearsal, you know, if it's one scene, could be a three, four, or five-page scene. You know, we t we see the scene, and then we s we get together and talk about how it's going to be shot, what the yeah. coverage is, and how we. I kind of have a timer in my head after all these years of doing that, and even then, there was a you know a clock, and then at ten o'clock in the morning we reconvene and say <laughs> how we doing, and then at lunchtime we convene and say you know, and then yeah. towards the end of the day you're like okay. You know, what are we going to have to cut? What shots are we going to have to cut in order to get the day's work done? Or what I always try to do is get the day's work done early enough so that 
the director had some gravy, had some time to do a shot that, boy, he'd love to get that extra shot or that extra scene done. So, yeah, I mean, you, you're responsible. Somebody's, somebody's given you X millions of dollars to make a movie, and my job is to make sure it's done and completed on time and within budget. But at the same time, it can't just be on budget and, 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 and on schedule. You've got to make sure it's good. Yeah. <laughs> you can't just get it done and it's, it's not just no a good. factory system. No, it's no, really it's got to be. It's got to have quality. Yeah. And I've worked on a few movies that people didn't care about quality. Where directors that didn't care a, about quality, or was well, no, no, no. This is I'm talking about schlock kind of stuff. Okay. Early, 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 early on in my in my life. But uh, no, you always want it to be quality. You want yeah. it to be as as good as you can given the parameters. And uh, Heaven Can Wait was sort of a unique film in that there were two directors on it, Warren Beatty and Buck Henry. Um, I always wondered, was that the intention, to always have two directors? Uh, I think Warren, because he was directing and starring, wanted an alter ego to be behind the camera that he could commiserate with. I think that, uh, I mean, Warren directed the movie. Buck uh, was his eyes and ears uh, and... Uh, Buck did as best he could to work with Warren. Yeah. And uh, that had a famous scene, uh, I believe it was shot uh, during an actual live football game, the climax of the film. Uh, is that correct? At yes. the Coliseum? Yes, I did all that. So how was that organized in terms of sort of having, uh, you know, that within was, all that chaos to really accomplish? It wasn't chaos. <laughs> that, that's my job. I'm an organizer. Uh, I first went to the National Football League and to Carol Rosenblum, who owned the Rams, and asked them permission, or got per- I got permission from the Rams and the National Football League to be able to shoot at halftime the scenes with Warren in as quarterback and to shoot during the, the first and second halves uh, certain, certain scenes that we needed. And... Uh, Got, got those permissions and then I put together a full two full teams uh, 11 men uh, to be the offense of the LA Rams and 11 men to be the defense of the Pittsburgh Steelers and uh, these were actual football players these were actual yeah. retired football players or real football players and we worked with them prior we rehearsed with them prior to uh, and during the, if you look at the, you know, during the scenes where he goes out and he's practicing at the Coliseum yeah. with the rest of his team, those guys were all you know, great, great ball players, and we were able to get all those. We had a, a guy named uh, Alan Graff was our stunt coordinator, and Alan was a football player at USC. So between he and I, we got Les Josephson and Merlin Olson and Deacon Jones and all these great guys to to be working with us. Jack Snow, uh, and uh, we rehearsed the whole the whole sequence. We got referees, actual you know retired referees, and wardrobe them. We got actual the guys that hold the the ten yard the yardsticks. I mean, we we, we did the whole ball of wax, and um, before the game started, I had them all out on off to the side at USC. And we practiced the entire sequence 
So we really knew exactly. So it was what a fully we choreographed uh, play. All, everything. all choreographed. Wow. Everything was choreographed, including starting. We, we had broken down. I had broken down the the like. There's the scene where um, uh, where the quarterback's been hurt. Uh, when when you know the the, other, the quarterbacks have been hurt and they're going to put in yeah. Joe Pendleton, who's now who whatever his name is, I can't remember, uh, Leo Farnsworth, um, as quarterback, and he's hurt and he's being put on a stretcher. This other guy, and so I decided that we should shoot it during the national anthem because everybody would be standing and staring down at so we where they have the the flag. Yeah, I also had. I also had the gurney yeah. and the guys surrounding so that when you intercut, yeah. you saw everybody standing looking like, oh my God, the quarterback's so hurt during the action. It looked to, yeah. exactly. Wow. Um, and we had also during the, the, in those days, you did a lot of Zoom shots in the 1970s. And I wanted to make sure that we saw that it was Warren Beatty. So we started tight on, and I wanted the crowd to be there during halftime. So yeah. I got Paul Paterni, who was the Ram announcer, when the halftime bell rang, or the gunshot, and the Rams ran off the field, I had our entire team, everybody ran on the field. The 10-yard the, the marker guys, the referees, both teams, so that there were 48 you know, guys on each side. There was 11 and 11 on the field. But there were all the all the trainers, everybody. It looked real, wow. and I had Paul Paterni say, "Don't go away, folks, because tonight the Rams are going to win the Super Bowl." And nobody went out to buy hot dogs. They all <laughs> stayed because we had the Rams win the Super Bowl, and we had a we started tight on Warren uh, as he came out of the huddle, so you could see it was Warren Beatty, and then we zoomed back, and you saw, "Wow, that's Warren Beatty there. That's the real teams." And you saw 50,000 fans in the stands. So you left, wow, he's this really is an authentic there. Game. It's this authentic. Is, yeah. And we shot, we had six cameras, Billy Fraker. Uh, uh, we had spotted where to put all six cameras. So we shot the key shot where the ball is, it's the immaculate reception, very similar to the Pittsburgh Steelers, Franco Harris, you know, that, that famous, yeah. you know, famous Oakland Raiders, you know, thing. Um, and we did it about five or six times. Uh, we had 14 minutes. That's all we had. And we shot... To shoot the entire to 14 shoot, minutes. So we, to shoot that whole... Get it or... To, to, get, it. to get it. Yeah. We did that about six or seven times. Wow. Warren was exhausted because he was running down the field. Did you field. have any video playback that he could no, watch and, between... No, no time. Wow. It was the, one of the first video playback. We had no time. We had 14 minutes. I, Warren kept saying, I want... Again, again. I said, Warren, they're... They're coming back. <laughs> and what we did is, because we got that shot enough times, we yeah. also did all, we did shots of him throwing the ball. and we, we, other, we did other stuff. And we got so much. It's amazing what you can get in 14 minutes if it's planned. Yeah. It's the same thing we did with uh, Polanski on Chinatown. When you look at the scene where the car is coming down to the reservoir, uh, if you look at, I think there's five or six cuts that we did we did those five or six cuts every 15 minutes between six and seven o'clock, right up to the very last till we ran out of light. It's the car coming down the hill from behind Jack. Yeah. It's a side angle view with 
Alonzo in the car with Jack. It's a front shot. Did you have multiple cameras or was no, it no, it's one, one camera, one camera. just just we, different setups. We we yeah. did all all the different setups and all the way to Jack getting out of the car, looking around, wow. and then hearing the gunshot. I mean, jumping over the fence and then hearing the gunshot. Uh, all all in 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 fifteen minute increments, so that the light would match for all of them, and then we shot the very last shot of the movie after we had finished the whole movie. We shot the shot of Jack holding on to the fence because of the gunshot and hearing something, and all of a sudden the water coming and throwing him up against the yeah. That the, was a real reservoir with the water coming down, so that no, had to be really no. No, that built, wasn't. We built that on 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 the back lot of Paramount. Oh wow! The, the, everything else was shot at the. Uh, at the at the uh, Stone Canyon Reservoir. But when the water is coming down, he's when the water is coming down, he's coming over the fence. Yeah. That was a dump tank. Wow! And he came over. We did it. Take one, and the water threw him right up against the fence. Uh, he climbs over, and then we cut, and that's when Polanski and the other guys come up and go, "Hey, kitty cat!" But we only did one take of that because Jack said, "That's it." Yeah, you got it's it. It's kind of dangerous watching. I mean, it's obviously him doing the whole. It was him climb doing the whole and everything. Thing. So we did it in one take. One take. Uh, so on a movie like Heaven Can Wait, where your director is also your lead actor, mm -hmm. is there any conflict that happens in terms of you know trying to um, you know he obviously wants to see how he's performing and yeah, well it was one of the, it was one of the first times we ever had videotapes, so yes, yeah. we took a long t long time to make that movie. <laughs> so there were a lot of breaks where you would, he would sort of watch his performance oh, sure. and we'd wa he'd watch if he was in the scene, not just his performance, he'd watch the whole scene for everybody's performance. Yeah. And uh, when you transitioned to sort of being uh, sort of a developer of material, um, was that a, was did you feel it was essential that you know you had learned all of sort of the essential production practical experience of running a set? Did that help you develop uh, creatively a uh, screenplay and work with writers and you know? Really I work sure with hope so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that uh, there are very few of us left who actually, and when you called yourself a producer in those days. Yeah. And even now, that actually know how to what happens on a set, as well as creatively how to get the scene better, to work with the actors, to yeah. work with the writer, to do everything. There's because today a lot of producers are former agents, former managers, and you know they really don't have a lot of on-set experience, so they don't really know how the execution of the actual film happens. Uh, does that seem sort of the rarity today? Someone who has both sort of practical. There's a few of us. There's a few of us left. Yeah, <laughs> there's a few of us left. Cool. And uh, sort of one of my uh, favorite films is uh, Pope of Greenwich Village, uh, which I believe you worked with uh, Gene Kirkwood yes, on developing. Partner, yeah. And uh, Stuart Rosenberg directed. Um, and I had done a bunch of movies with Stuart before as an assistant director to him. Yeah. What was uh, sort of the background on developing that material and uh, eventually casting uh, Mickey Rourke and Eric Roberts? Uh, well, uh, we bought the book. Gene and I were partners. We bought several books at that time, including Gorky Park and uh, Pope of Greenwich Village, and um, loved it. It was always something, it was really Gene's. Gene loved this piece of material and really wanted to do it. And we had an agent named Stan Kamen, who ran the William Morris office, who also loved it. And I was going off to go make Gorky Park, and when I left, we had uh, we were negotiating with um, Francis Coppola to direct it, 
and uh, uh, Jimmy Kahn and Al Pacino to play the two guys. And when I came back, we had Ron Maxwell, Mickey Rourke, and (laughs) Eric Roberts. (laughs) There were were some problems that couldn't be solved. Was Michael Cimino ever attached to direct? Michael Cimino came when we fired Ron Maxwell uh, in pre-production. Michael Chimino. How do you know this stuff? Oh, I do a lot of research. I read a lot about film history. <laughs> um, Michael Chimino, uh, Freddie Fields, uh, and when we fired Michael Chimino, I'm sorry, when we fired uh, uh, Ron Maxwell, yeah. uh, I knew Stuart Rosenberg very well because I had been his assistant director and I thought Stu would be a great replacement as a producer. It was on the Drowning Pool? I, think. I did the Drowning yeah. Pool, I did WUSA, I did the April Fools, I did a movie called Move. Four movies I think I did with Stu. Maybe I'm leaving one out, there may have been another. Oh, and then The Pope Grand Village. Yeah. Five. Um, but I thought Stu had done The Defenders and he really he was a New York City guy. And as a producer, when I knew that we were getting rid of Ron Maxwell, that uh, I wanted to have somebody in the wings. You know, you want to have your relief pitcher yeah. ready. And so I had asked Stu to read the script, and he loved it. But Freddie Field said, no, 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 I'm bringing in somebody, so you be ready. And he brought in, he flew in with Michael Cimino. And I spent a day with Mr. Cimino, me and Paul Silbert and Gene. And when it was over, uh, Mr. Cimino declined to make the film. Thank God. Because <laughs> he didn't want to make the same movie I wanted to make. Or Gene wanted to make. And um, Freddie Fields said, great, let's go with Stuart Rosenberg. And that's how Stu came in two weeks before shooting and did a phenomenal job. And uh, I, I'm very proud of that picture. Yeah, there's great chemistry between Mickey Burke and Aaron Roberts. Well, they hung out together a lot for a long time. Mickey was part of the movie for years he, he just so desperately wanted to do it. Yeah. No, he's a... Mickey Rourke's sort of a very underappreciated actor. He sort of had some hard times at a certain point, but yeah. uh, certainly yeah. given great performance in that. And also Geraldine Page, who yeah. was uh, nominated for an Oscar yeah. as well. Yeah, she was great. So um, so then later on, you also, uh, you know, you kept developing material, but did you always, even when you were a creative producer, did you always sort of want another hand in the practical production of the always. film as well? Always. That was... That's what you did. You know, you make a movie. In in yeah. my years, you you made a movie. <laughs> you made a producing a movie was creating creatively, and uh, you know now we have line producers. In those days, you didn't have a line producer. You did it all. Yeah, you had a production manager. So it really wasn't like line producer, UPM, and the whole uh, down there line was UPM that and really producer. transitioned at a certain point. There was UPM and producer. Yeah. And uh, what happened is the business, in order to produce movies, you had to, you had to be producing lots of movies in order to, to keep going as a producer. So a lot of the newer producers, as you said, agents, managers, um, people out of film school that were producers or writers or yeah. actors, whoever they were, they weren't, they needed to hire somebody beyond just the production manager to actually um, be there on the set. And uh, that's how it happened. And uh, have you ever had instances where the screenplay wasn't finished as you were sort of going into the first day of shooting? I (laughs) know it might be a silly question. That's a very silly uh, question. (laughs) I don't ever... The the script never ends till you've actually locked the movie 
and, and I know the and, ending of Chinatown was sort of up in the air uh, for a while. But <laughs> a lot of endings that are up in the up up in the air for a while. Yeah. Um, so another uh, favorite of mine is uh, Wayne's World. So I was wondering how did that come? I know Lauren Michaels was a little behind it as well. He had a little behind it. Are you kidding? <laughs> it's the Saturday Night Live sketch. Yeah. So. Are you kidding? Lawrence. <laughs> Uh, I was making a film for Paramount. I had a deal at Paramount, and uh, uh, Gary Lucchese and John Goldwyn uh, flew me in from, I was shooting in uh, Texas somewhere on a film. And I met with Lorne because they wanted, you know, quote, a Hollywood producer to be there with with Lorne, who really was a, a television guy. He had made a couple of movies that hadn't been very successful and had gone way over budget, I think. And Lauren and I got along, and uh, it was uh, it was really interesting because Lauren is used to like on Saturday Night Live all the sketches. They don't, he doesn't really decide what sketches are in and what sketches aren't in when it's live, starting at eleven thirty-five on a Saturday night. They do a dress rehearsal starting at about nine thirty, I think, yeah. and then he makes the decision. So. In a movie, you can't really show up on the day of shooting not knowing what you're going to do. Especially when you're making a schedule. And when you're making a movie else, for yeah. a price. You know, Paramount at the time thought it was a filler. You know, well, they needed a movie to open, you know, to, to have a movie, a little comedy, but they never thought it was going to be what it was. And so Lauren and I had a few, uh, a few problems dealing with, you know, Lauren wanted to keep the ball on the air and me wanting to be as organized as I possibly could. And, but it turned out really well, and we've remained friends for, you know, 25 years or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, just make sure here. Um, so uh, another favorite of mine, as well as uh, Keeping the Faith, which uh, I think Stuart Bloomberg wrote and Edward Norton uh, ended up directing, uh, which is an interesting film because it sort of shows a balance of two religions and intercommunication between them and uh, also the conflict also ensues. How did that script develop? And uh, Well, Edward Edward and I, you know, Edward, this, his first movie was Primal Fear, which I was one of the producers on. And Edward and I really hit it off. And Edward is very, very um, um, curious. Yeah. He's got great curiosity. And so he would talk to him about some of the questions you're asking me. Uh, he really was curious, and uh, one day when we were making it, he said, hey, would you mind, my buddy wrote a script, uh, would you mind reading it and tell me what you think? And I said, sure, Edward. You know, I read it, and I laughed, and I thought it was funny. And I gave him, he and Stuart, I met Stuart, because Stuart uh, was his best friend at Yale. They were best buddies. And I gave him some notes, and about six months later, he said, uh, hey, Stuart did another draft. Would you mind, uh, you know, uh, taking a look? And I read it again, and I gave my notes, and they kept going. Yeah. And I think maybe there was a third time, and then finally, about 1998, I guess, or 97, maybe a couple of years later, he said, hey, we're going to go out with this script. You know, uh, we're going to go out to the town. We really believe in it. Will you read it? And would you like to join us? Because I'm going to direct it. And I read it, and I said, yeah. And so we went out as a package. 
me to produce with, you know, Ed, Edward to direct. And, uh, you know, I had obviously done a lot of movies with first-time directors. Yeah. Robert Benton, Paul Mazursky, Taylor Hackford, Warren Beatty, just to name a few. <laughs> and um, so we went to, and we, we got, it was bought by uh, Columbia. And we did continue to develop it at Columbia. And at a certain point, Columbia wasn't going to make the movie, so they put it in turnaround and... Uh, we were fortunate enough to get Ben Stiller, and uh, luckily Spyglass and Disney decided to make the movie. Yeah. And uh, they kind of left us alone, and it was really... I had a great time. I had a great time. and uh, I love Ed, and I love Stu, and I'm really happy for Stu that he went on and, you know, uh, his movie... Uh, oh, Kids Are All Right. Kids Are All yeah, Right. You know, it's a big hit, and he was nominated for an Oscar, and he's a great writer, and... He directed a movie which didn't do very well, but I thought it was really actually a pretty good movie. Oh, yeah, the uh, Thanks for Sharing? Thanks for Sharing, yeah. 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 I'm sure he'll direct another, and uh, uh, Edward's going to direct another. So, uh, you know, they're still buddies. Yeah. Um, I was wondering what you think about uh, sort of the proliferation of independent financing, because when you first started, it was really just the studios only, and now there's foreign pre-sales to finance films and independent financiers. Uh, I was just wondering, sort of, how have you navigated that world, and how is it different from not the very well. system? <laughs> not very well. I'm not making as many movies as I'd like to. Um, well, yeah. Well, today it's you know you're either doing a tentpole movie or you're doing an independent. There are very few moderately budgeted movies uh, done by the studios, and those moderately budgeted movies are movies like Argo, yeah. <laughs> that do, you know that win an Academy Award. Um, but it's tough it's tougher now than I think ever to make get movies made uh, if you're not you know Marvel or, or Pixar or uh, uh, Fast and Furious or Superman or Batman yeah. you know and honestly that's not the kind of movies that I'm kind of interested in yeah. so it's, it's harder for me and uh, sort of working for the Academy and eventually becoming the president um what do you feel maybe was sort of your proudest moment when you were uh, ha when you had that responsibility and you were well I, I think I, I, re I had been around the academy forever and I was very proud of the fact that I was the only second generation president my father was president in the 1970s and I was president a few years ago um, so I was really proud of that and uh, I really believed that the, the academy needed to come into the 21st century still kind of old-fashioned and uh, I made a lot of changes and uh, I'm really proud of them. Uh, I was proud of the fact that I had the first general membership meeting of the Academy in 85 years <laughs> and we had never had one and I felt like the, the Academy members felt really good about that. I felt really good about my year was the first year we ever voted online <laughs> and that we had over 90% of our members voted for the first time in history. Wow. It's not really known how many voted before, but I can tell you over 90%. It was just mail-in ballots. Mail-in so ballots that. before then. Wow. We still do mailings to some, some of our older members who don't have computers, but most everybody is voting online now. And I'm really proud of the fact that for the first time uh, I was able to move forward that all 24 awards are voted on by the entire membership. Uh, in the past, you had to uh, you had to actually go to the theaters and see the, the shorts or the foreign films or the documentaries. And if you didn't show up there, you couldn't vote for them. 
now you can still show up and vote, but you also get the screeners so that you can, you can look at them yourself uh, and decide. So we have, but if you don't look at them, we beg our members not to vote if, unless you've actually seen all of them. Yeah. But I'm really proud of the fact that, so that's, that's a proud moment. Um, I was proud of the fact that I made, uh, it's not just Oscar night, but it's Oscar week. And I did a lot of new, innovative things that are still going, so that the the people who are nominated, the old adage, uh, it's great to be nominated, by the time that week is over, it is great to be nominated. And it's not just, you don't just show up at the Oscars and four out of five of you lose. <laughs> so I have, I'm very proud of my year at the Academy. Yeah. And, uh, and then you're in the Producers Guild, uh, which you've also taken part of. Uh, what is your opinion on sort of the producing credits that have proliferated over the years in terms of my opinion? Well, you, if you, like a if, dozen executive if you, producers, if you've if you've if you've looked at my history, you know yeah. the most the proudest moment in my career are not the movies I've made or the the Academy. It's getting the producers' mark done. Uh, I, I we can only we only arbitrate the producer credit. Exec producer, associate producer, co-producer, I'm sorry, they aren't the producer. That's a credit that's negotiated. Some people actually do the job of an executive producer, associate producer, co-producer. Yeah. But the producer credit is what that's I That's what have the Producers worked. Guild... Uh, I have worked yeah. tirelessly for 14 years to get the producers back the respect that they deserve and the work that they do to actually get a movie produced. Uh, unfortunately, in my opinion, a movie is not just the director's film. Uh, most of the time, a producer found the material yeah. and brought the director in, yeah. and all of a sudden it's a so-and-so film. You like know. in the case of Chinatown, Robert Evans had found uh, the script, which Robert Town had written and developed no, it. No, he was didn't that... find the script. No. no. Bill Castle, the book was sent out to every studio. Bill Castle was fast enough on the trigger to buy the book, and then Bill and then Robert Evans bought the book from Bill Castle, but Bill Castle produced the movie. So Robert oh, Evans. Oh, for did, uh, Chinatown was that? Oh, for Chinatown. Oh, Chinatown. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. Chinatown. Yeah, it was Bob Town who had this had the story, Jack. Bob, they were all buddies, and yeah, and, and Bob brought in Roman, yeah. you know, but it was a, and you know, it, it's a team effort. If you look at, I was just listening to sports on the way in, you know, the bet, who, who won the, uh, you know, the NBA basketball title this year? Well, a team, yeah. you know, San Antonio Spurs, not one player, Le LeBron James, you know, and, uh, that's, I believe in the team. Yeah. Do you think the possessorial credit that directors take, um, is that something that you think should be taken out as a whole? No. I don't know if that's... No. I just believe that, yeah. uh, I think that, I think critics give too much credit only to the director and yeah. not enough credit to the producer. And therefore it has become, you know, cinema, you know, it's, <laughs> auteur, it's auteur uh, theory. Yeah. Uh, and there are some directors, and there's a good handful of them, that really, you know, yeah, it's their movie, yeah. but they've taken it over. But believe me, there are the great producers uh, 
are just as important. Yeah. And interviewing uh, Paul Maslansky, uh, it was fascinating because you know he developed the concept for Police Academy. It was an idea that came in his head, and he went out and he hired the writers to write a draft of a screenplay. But it was really that it was a spark of inspiration that uh, you know had that concept rolling that made it into a film and into a yeah. big series. Yeah. Uh, and then to sort of wrap everything up, um, what do you think overall has been the proudest moment of your career? Uh, through Getting the producer's mark yeah. so that everybody, when you go to a movie from now on, most movies, at least this year, if it has a PGA after the producer's name, what it means is, is the Producers Guild has arbitrated the film and said that, yes, that person actually produced the movie. There yeah. may be other producer credits that have been negotiated, but the, that person did more of the producing functions, a majority of the producing functions, and therefore they deserve the credit, they deserve the Oscar, the, the BAFTA, the Golden Globe, the Producers Guild Award, because they actually did it. Yeah. We don't want to take credit away from other people who get the credit of producer or some other credit. But I believe that my proudest moment is, is getting a lot of respect back for the producer. Um, and that's probably number one. Number two is probably the Academy, being yeah. able to be president of the Academy. And number three is, is being able to work with some of the greatest, greatest talent uh, in Hollywood for which is now 50 years from Streisand and Redford and Hoffman and, and uh, um, Mike Myers, <laughs> Edward Norton, uh, Catherine Deneuve, I'm just looking around, uh, Warren Beatty, Alan Pakula, Roman Polanski, uh, John Schlesinger, John Schlesinger, yeah. Robert Wise, uh, you know, Walter Matthau, Jack Lemmon, Francis Coppola, um, Mark Gordon, you know, uh, great producers, Robert Evans, John Calley, Frank Wells, studio heads, you know, uh, Frank Price, Amy Pascal, um, Natalie Wood, John Lasseter, you know, I mean, these are Gary Marshall, Tom Hanks, you know, Laura Linney, Mia Farrow, Jack Nicholson. Man, I got to work with all these people. How lucky am I? I've, I'm, I'm very appreciative, and I have real gratitude that uh, I've been able to been able to do this. So, um, and I still love it, and I still I don't, I'll never quit. <laughs>